Well, good morning. You made it to the new service time. We are so proud of you. Thank you. Um, my name's Nate. If we don't know each other, I would love to meet you. I will be in the lobby after the service. But today, we're continuing our series called How to Think Like Jesus. And earlier this year, we looked at the mission of Jesus in Luke. And today, we're uh, in this series, we're talking about the teachings of Jesus in Luke. And one of Jesus' favorite ways to teach was through parables. Parables are just short, simple stories or metaphors that have uh, some kind of point that is supposed to help you think differently about yourself or about God or about the world. And so that's what we're doing in this series. Let me tell you why today's parable is important. As you heard that read, it might seem like, how are we gonna preach a whole sermon on that? Um, and should we even preach a whole sermon on that? Like, we could all just go, uh, maybe is what you're thinking. Um, here's, here's why I think today's parable matters. For some of you, there is something going on in the chaos of, of life and you are, are waiting and you are asking God to do something. And so far it seems like he's not at work. And you're wondering what is going on. And God, do you hear me? And, and so you're starting to wonder if God's silence is maybe the same as his absence. Or maybe there's something that you are going through in your life and you're just, you're slowly starting to lose the drive that you once had. You're starting to grow weary. Maybe you're starting to lose courage. There's something hard that you're walking through and it's like, this is taking so much out of me. I don't know if I can keep going. Maybe you're starting to lose hope. This parable speaks to you in the midst of that. So here's what happens. Verse 18, it says, he said, therefore, what's the kingdom of God like? What can I compare it to? And the fact that he says, therefore, that it means that Jesus is saying this parable in response to what came before it. And so Jesus tells this parable after an event in his life. And here's what happened. It was the Sabbath day, and for Jewish people, um, on the Sabbath, you don't work, you rest. And the tradition and custom was that on the Sabbath, you would go to the synagogue and meet with, you know, all of your friends and family and fellow Jewish community, similar to what we do on Sundays. And so they went to the synagogue in this town, and when Jesus got there, he saw that this woman was there who had a disability of some kind. And we don't know what the disability was, but he noticed that. And she was hunched over and she couldn't stand up straight. And it turns out she had been that way for 18 years. And so Jesus does what, you know, a kind and powerful person would do. He heals her immediately. And everybody is just thrilled by this, except for the leaders of the synagogue. 
And so after Jesus does this, the leader of the synagogue gets up and he lectures everybody um, about the Sabbath. And here's what he says. Look, all right, we're open six days a week, all right? So if you've got a problem that you need to get fixed, if you've got some kind of ailment that you need prayer for or healing for, come on one of those other six days, all right? On the Sabbath, we don't do stuff like that. We rest, all right? So Jesus shouldn't have been doing this. Um, We'll let it slide this time, but just so y'all know, on the Sabbath, we rest. And Jesus just thinks that that way of thinking is absurd. And so he says, look, the Sabbath is all about rest, right? But, but this woman's not able to rest and hasn't been able to for 18 years because of this disability. And so what better day to set her free from that than the Sabbath day? And after Jesus confronts this religious leader in front of the whole synagogue, the crowd rejoices with Jesus. But the religious leaders are humiliated. And then Jesus tells this parable. So this parable comes after something about that story and the Sabbath and the synagogue. See, Jesus said that he came to bring God's kingdom. That's how he introduced his ministry. And the way that he was bringing about his kingdom was by doing things like healing that woman and teaching in the synagogue. But... Even though Jesus is coming to redeem, he's being rejected. The religious leaders are rejecting him. Right now, in that example, the crowd embraced him, but just give him some time. Eventually, they're gonna reject him too. And so Jesus, in the face of rejection and in the face of opposition, How do you keep going so faithfully? How do you maintain such courage in the face of opposition? How do you maintain such hope in the future, even though there seems to be so much rejection? That's what Jesus answers in the parable. If you want to learn how to think like Jesus, if you want to be able to endure Here's what you gotta know. The kingdom of God, what could we compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. A mustard seed is something very small. I was gonna bring one, but I lost it. It was so small, I just couldn't even keep up with it. So small that you could just dismiss it. You could lose it. You could neglect it. You could not take it seriously. But once it's planted, it grows into a tree and the birds of the sky come and make a home in it. He continues, verse 20. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? Verse 21. It's like leaven or yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour 
until all of it was leavened. In other words, it's this small thing that on its own, it seems insignificant. But when you get it in with the flour, a large amount of flour, I don't know how much bread 50 pounds of flour makes. I'm sure some commentator has researched that, but I don't know. The point is, it's a lot of bread. And yet it only takes a little bit of the leaven to get in with the bread and suddenly all of it, all of the flour is affected by the little bit of leaven. What's the point of this parable? Of these two parables? Here's, I think, the point. The kingdom of God has humble beginnings. The kingdom of God has humble beginnings. It comes slowly and surprisingly, but it brings powerful results. The mustard seed is small, but it eventually grows into a tree and the birds come and nest in its branches. Now, Jesus is using an Old Testament metaphor here. In the Old Testament, um, a tree that has branches that birds come and live in represents a kingdom or a nation or an empire that becomes so expansive that all kinds of different peoples start to inhabit that kingdom. So in Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is given this vision. Nebuchadnezzar was the, the emperor of Babylon, one of the great ancient empires. And he has this vision that, that Daniel explains to him, and here was the vision. You're a tree, a big, mighty tree with all of these branches and all kinds of birds are living in you. In, you. in other words, there's, Babylon has grown so much that so many people now belong to your kingdom who were originally foreigners. But, Nebuchadnezzar, your tree is going to be chopped down. Same thing happens in Ezekiel chapter 31, but with the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh, you're this great king. Your empire has become so expansive. The Egyptian empire has grown and all kinds of people are now under your authority, but you're like a tree that's going to be chopped down. So in this parable, Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed. See, when Nebuchadnezzar was reigning on his throne and the kingdom was so expansive and everybody belonged to Babylon, the kingdom of God looked defeated, insignificant, trampled on, just something that you would walk over on your feet. And when Egypt was so expansive, the kingdom of God, I mean, gosh, in, in Jerusalem, the walls had fallen down, the temple had been destroyed, all of the gold and wealth had been taken captive to Babylon. All of the wealthy, intellectual, smart leaders of the nation had been taken into captivity. And what was left was just, you know, the commoners, and the kingdom was destroyed. 
If you ask Nebuchadnezzar, what's the kingdom of God? You know, Israel's God. What's it like? Uh, Over, non-existent, trampled on. But actually it was like a mustard seed. That's the point of the parable. Actually, what looks like it's having no effect at all, what looks like you could just completely neglect it, it's actually like a leaven that's being mixed into this flour, a large amount of flour, so that eventually it's going to make a difference with the whole thing. It's going to affect the whole thing. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God was overlooked, mocked. It seemed small and insignificant, but the kingdom of God is the tree that will endure. It is the kingdom that will not be shaken, and it is the place that will become a home for all the peoples of the earth. And the kingdom brings transformation for everything. The kingdom of God may look small and insignificant, but it eventually transforms everything. No part of the earth will be left unaffected by God's kingdom. All of this talk about kingdoms that grow and become a home for all peoples and have global influence. If you lived in the fifth or sixth century BC, you would think, Babylon, I mean, who could ever topple Babylon? Do you think that today? You're like, wow, the global influence of Babylon. No. And so, should we rejoice that we belong to the world's greatest empire today? They don't call us an empire, we're a democracy. But we're the most expansive, influential group. We're the tallest tree that has nations resting in our branches. We are so vastly influential. Should we rest in that? No. Because there's a kingdom that will endure, and it's not the United States. It's the kingdom of God, and on the surface, it, it's like something you would just trample on. It looks small and insignificant. But it's like a mustard seed. It's like a leaven. So, here's how to think like Jesus. If you want to learn how to think like Jesus, here's what Jesus is inviting us to see, to think in this parable. God's kingdom is most powerful but it looks kind of weak. And God's kingdom is advancing, but it looks kind of inactive. God's kingdom is most powerful, but it might look weak. And God's kingdom is advancing, but it might look inactive. How do we learn how to think like that? And what would it look like if we did think like that? Well, first, just think for a minute 
about the story of God advancing his kingdom throughout the Bible. If you're new to the Bible and you don't know its overall layout and storyline, um, here's just a quick little summary, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? And this is where the debate always goes, all right? It's like, oh gosh, are we about to talk about this? How did he create the world? The Bible says he did it in six days. The debate typically hinges around, now was a day like a real day or was it like a zillion years kind of a day? And what's fascinating to me is that there were six of them. Six. The all-powerful God who makes everything decided to create the world in six days. And then he took a break. Isn't that odd? Is that how you would create the world? Is that how you run your company? Now look, there's a lot of stuff we could get done on Monday, but instead, let's pace ourselves, all right? We're gonna work Monday through Saturday. I guess technically, if I'm in the Jewish mindset, we're working Sunday through Friday. And then we're taking Saturday off. I mean, doesn't it seem odd that the all-powerful God would use six days? What kind of God would do that? A God who is patient. He's not in a hurry. And then after he makes the world, he's got, you know, a lot of ideas, and he's like, man, this is gonna be really cool. Let's wait till day five, all right? Let's wait till day six, all right? And then he gets to day six, and he creates the pinnacle of creation, mankind. And God's vision is that the whole earth would be full of humans who would live in a good and right relationship with each other and also with him. And so here's his plan is you guys, all right, he creates a man and a woman, and then he says, you guys be fruitful and multiply, all right? We'll get there someday. Now, could God have made more people? Yeah. But instead, he chooses to make two and wait. And then they screw it up, and they listen to this serpent who can talk. It's weird. And then the whole thing gets corrupted. And so what's God's plan to fix it? He tells the woman that you are going to have a son. Or literally, you're going to have a seed. And that son is going to be the one who ultimately defeats this serpent, this snake, and who fixes the problems. So that's Genesis chapter three. You get to Genesis chapter four, and the woman has a son. And you're like, all right, here's the guy who's going to destroy evil and make the world right. And instead, he destroys his brother and kills him. And you're like, wait, that, this isn't... And you realize, oh, wait a minute. She's gonna have a son, but like a distant son, like 
like a long family line is going to be developed here. Do you see how patient this process is? I finish a quiet time sometimes, like literally 30 minutes. And if I'm not feeling better at the end of the, the 30 minutes, I'm like, man, God, all right, well, I guess I got to go to work without your favor today. And God is taking six days to make the world. He's entrusting the promised descendant of Eve, this son, this seed, into this long story that's going to take thousands of years to complete. Do you see the patience of God? The same is true throughout the whole storyline. There's this man named Abraham. He's old, and his wife is old, which makes it hard for them to have a kid. But God says, y'all are going to be the ones who continue this line, who are going to have the son who's ultimately going to fix everything. Abraham's family grows into a nation, but they become slaves for 400 years before they're able to actually do anything as a nation that could help the world. And so after those 400 years, they are liberated. And then they get to come to the land. But even though God's going to fix everything through this nation, first they're going to have this, you know, few hundred years of infighting and not having a king and yada, yada. And then eventually we're going to have a king. Awesome. We got the kingdom set up, but this king is going to be the one who he doesn't work out. And so yeah, I have to get rid of him. And then we'll have the real king. All right. But the real king is the youngest. The youngest, the smallest. He's the one. All right, so God sets up the kingdom with him. He seems like a good guy. Everything's on track. And then he sends all of his sons sin. They end up, you know, messing up the whole kingdom. The kingdom gets destroyed. And then you got Babylon and this big tree. And do you see how the story is like, I mean, who writes a story like that? A God who is patient, a God who understands that this kingdom is going to come like a mustard seed. It's going to be like leaven. It's going to be small and insignificant, and you're going to look at, you know, look over it. But it's going to eventually do something big and great that lasts. And so then, after thousands of years of waiting for these promises to come about, in some cases, Eventually, Jesus comes. He's the promised seed, the promised descendant, the son of Eve and Abraham and David that God promised would send. And he comes to bring this kingdom to make all things right. But he comes as a baby, and you've got to wait 30 years for him to grow up. And then even after he grows up, he doesn't just like, you know, Go straight to Jerusalem and, you know, let's fix this thing. Instead, he has three years of a ministry. And then the Savior, who's supposed to fix everything, goes to a cross and dies. And this is, like, let's not over-spiritualize that for just a minute. Let's think about it for just a second and, and just recognize that Typically, if you are going to save people, it's not going to be by getting arrested and defeated and having all of your followers disband. 
And yet that's the strategy that Jesus chooses because he's the savior who has come to take care of a much bigger problem than we want to think about. He's not just interested in retransforming society and you know setting up things and reorganizing and rolling out this new program that's going to fix, you know. But he wants to deal with the root problem, and that is there's something inside of you and me that's fundamentally broken. It's called sin. It creates all kinds of dysfunction in our own lives, in our relationships with people, in society. And Jesus came to save us from that problem. And in doing so, eventually he'll fix society. It'll become a tree and all the nations will come. It'll be like leaven that eventually transforms the whole thing. But but it starts by him going to the cross and dying for sin in the place of sinners so that people like you and me can be forgiven. And then, even after that, you have to wait for him to be raised from the dead on the third day. Then he's raised from the dead, and you're like, all right, we're gonna establish the kingdom. And he's like, actually, uh, and that's what his disciples are asking him. I mean, literally, in Acts chapter one, the question that they're asking him after he's been raised from the dead is, is this the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom to, to Israel? Like, is this the time that the, okay, so we were, we definitely were thrown for a loop with the cross and the resurrection, like that, we, we didn't see that coming, all right? But now, is it the time for the kingdom of God to arrive in full force? He says, no, it's not for you to know the times that God has set by his own authority, but you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then he leaves, And he entrusts these people with carrying this message about him to the ends of the earth. And something that started in Jerusalem with literally just about 100 people has continued to spread. Now here you are in Renton, Washington. I mean, think about that. But is it over? No. It's like a mustard seed. It takes time. It's like leaven. You got to get it in there, and then eventually it's going to transform the whole thing, but it takes time. Do you see how the kingdom of God is far more like a grassroots movement than a carefully polished PR campaign? Do you see how the kingdom of God is so powerful and yet it looks so weak? It's, it's advancing and yet it looks like nothing's happening at all. It looks inactive. If you are going to think like Jesus and embrace that idea that the way that God works is slow and surprising and patient What would that look like in your life? I want to share four quick things with you. If the most powerful thing in the world looks weak and small and insignificant, then how should you live? 
if the most important thing in life comes slowly, then what kind of person should you be? Four quick ideas. First, you've got to be brave enough to look foolish. If you're going to think like Jesus and embrace the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of God is going to be a place where you can dwell, then you've got to be brave enough to look foolish. Here's what I mean. In order to enter this kingdom, you've got to acknowledge first your own foolishness. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I don't have answers on my own. I cannot fix the problems in this life on my own. Why do I do the things that I hate? Why do I set out in the morning like I'm going to be a, a, I'm going to do the right thing today and then I still end up not doing things that I said I was going to do? Why is that? You can either acknowledge that you don't know the answer and that you foolishly make bad decisions that hurt people and hurt yourself. Or you can try to be the hero and try to be wise. It's going to take courage to acknowledge that there's foolishness in you that only Jesus can help with. Jesus comes and he says, look, the path forward for you is not going to be, you know, I'm going to teach you some principles and then you're going to live a perfect life and you'll be good. The key for you, if you're a foolish failure, is not to try and redact, you know, every part of your life where you screwed up instead. It's to just acknowledge that you're foolish and you're a failure and let me forgive you. Let me forgive you because of what I've, what, what I've accomplished on the cross. That's going to take courage to even get to that point where you could do that. And it's going to take courage to, to look like a fool to the world to embrace that message. Christianity is not primarily about what you have to do for God. It's primarily about the fact that God has done something for you by sending his son but to embrace Jesus, man, you're gonna look like a fool in so many areas of life. That has always been true. It's only becoming more true in our culture. So, to embrace this kingdom, you've gotta be brave enough to look foolish. What if Jesus is right and what if real life is found by embracing Jesus and his claims? Here's the second thing. is you gotta be faithful in the small things. If you're gonna think like Jesus, that God's kingdom is powerful, but it might look weak, and God is, God's kingdom is advancing, but it might look inactive, I think that will look like being faithful in the small things. We have a tendency to prioritize the big and the flashy. But what if the kind of work that advances God's kingdom is ordinarily small and overlooked? Um, recently I heard a story from um, a family in our church and I just asked them like how'd you end up at Highlands and she said well we visited here and um, then 
you know, a couple months later, my daughter got a card in the mail from Susan Halfhill. And she just wrote her a note on her birthday. And we thought, man, if that's the kind of place that we just, we just visited there and, and they thought to do something simple like that, those are the kind of people we could trust. What if small, ordinary things like that are typically the way in which God advances his kingdom? What if this is true for you as a parent? Many times we can fail to see, this is what uh, Zeb said this this week, and I thought this was really good. He said, many times as parents, we can fail to see the trees that we're planting. We get so focused and caught up in just making it through and, you know, the, the uh, thing to thing to thing that we forget, wait a minute. What if we were intentional about the way in which we want our family to be? And that doesn't guarantee that, you know, all your kids are going to grow up to be the best model citizens. That doesn't guarantee that. And who knows if you could even measure that in this life, because that's the way the kingdom works. You don't always see the fruit at the end. It's like a tree. It's like a seed. But, but what if, as parents, you were intentional about being faithful in the small things? You prioritize dinner just as much as you prioritize the awesome, cool, big trip and vacation. What if there's value and meaning in washing dishes and doing laundry and making meals and watching kids and going to work and entering numbers? What if being faithful in the small things is part of the way in which you advance God's kingdom because it's like a, a seed? If you Google things that require zero talent, um, here are some of the things that come up. Being on time, giving effort, bringing energy, bringing a good attitude, being teachable. These are things that you don't have to be smart or good at anything, and you can do that. And that's kind of how the kingdom goes. It's small stuff, man that God uses to advance his kingdom. It's like a seed. And this is why, as a church, one of my, you know, just convictions about the church is that we should prioritize what, what's called the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. That's just a way of saying that we want to try our best to be faithful to Scripture and not be as concerned about needing to be flashy. The ordinary faithful means of grace are things like gathering for worship, to pray together and read the Bible out loud and sing together and open up and teach the scriptures and to see the word tangibly through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We gather for worship. That's a simple, ordinary thing that the church has done for centuries. We commit to community. We hang out with each other and we pray for each other and we care for one another and we confess to one another and we forgive one another. Those are, again, ordinary things. We serve 
and we serve organically. And so we think to call people and we think to take people meals and we think to invite people over for dinner and we, we think to serve one another organically. And we, we do this in organized ways. This is why, you know, it's such a simple thing to be a greeter and say hi to someone and hand them a program. It's such a simple thing to serve on the tech team and literally, like, we make it pretty simple. You just, like, click buttons and it goes to the next thing for you. I mean, you very intuitive, all right? Things that require zero talent, right? That's not to diminish the tech team. They're awesome. Um, <laughs> they're in that room and they're probably like, what the heck, man? Um, <clears throat> I'm using it for this point, all right? Um, um, anyway. But serving with kids and students and these are, again, just ordinary things. Ordinary things. But what if that's part of the way that God advances his kingdom? What if you being a part of God's kingdom is literally just you, as soon as this is over, just looking and saying hello to someone? So, got to be brave enough to look foolish, faithful in the small things. I think if we're going to think like Jesus, that will look like being patient in the waiting, being patient in the waiting. This little section right here, I am preaching just to me, okay? If you ask my wife to describe me, patient is not one of the words that she would use, all right? And so this is at me, all right? But following Jesus is far more like bumper-to-bumper traffic than cruising on the open road. With the people in your life, are they moving, changing, or talking too slowly for you? Like literally, as they're talking, are you like, could you just get to the end of this story already? (laughs) Gosh. (laughs) With God, is the plan unfolding too slowly for you? You've got this thing you guys have been praying about. You think that God has called you to this and it's like the doors are not opening. And that will be frustrating unless you understand what Jesus understands. Unless you can think like Jesus and that is, you know, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's slow and patient. This weekend, I heard the story of a man in our church who um, I just asked him, or somebody asked him, how he became a Christian. And he said that it was more of a gradual process than like, you know, a decisive, like, epic moment. And I thought, you know, that's how it is for so many people. And that's one of the you know, challenges is as a church, like you want to be able to measure success, right? Like we had this many people come to faith. And it's like, that's awesome that sometimes in a moment, you know, 18 people came forward and they were saved. And, and like, that's awesome. And sometimes that, it happens that way and praise God for that, genuinely. But a lot of times it's way more like planting a seed and then waiting and praying and 
The church, therefore, is like a farm, not a factory. We don't just like crank out disciples. It's like, all right, we'll pump out some more. It's like a farm. And this is hard, especially, this being patient in the waiting, I think, is hard for leaders, if you're a leader in the room. Because leaders love progress. And so a question for you to think about if you're a leader, whether you're a leader of a team or an organization or a family or everybody leads themselves, but specifically in your workplace, a question for you to think about is what would patience look like for you as a leader? What would it look like for you to be a patient leader? Don't confuse that with a passive leader. Again, this is not anti-progress. But there's a way to have a posture of patience. And what would that look like for you? And what benefits might that contribute to your team? So, brave enough to look foolish, faithful in the small things, patient in the waiting, And last, I think this would look like being hopeful in the future. It can be easy to get discouraged when you're obeying God but not seeing results. This is true of your own life. If, you know, you're praying and you just don't see change. You've got this habit that you want to get rid of or this thing about yourself that you want to get rid of. And it's like, God, why, are, why am I still dealing with this? Or you can look at your circumstances and so much is going wrong or there's something going on with your, with your family or a friend or someone that you love. And it's like, man, this is just not working out. It's so easy to get frustrated I think that this parable teaches us that we should not measure God's work in our lives based solely on our current circumstances. This is true not just of your life, but with the people in your life. You've been praying, waiting, investing, but nothing's happening. You look around at the world, there's so many problems. What in the world? God, where are you? A day is coming when all of the earth will be redeemed. A day is coming when the kingdom of God will be the tree. All the other trees will have been chopped down, but this tree will endure. And so lift your eyes, don't lose hope. Transformation is coming. And you may not even get to see it in your lifetime. If that doesn't sound hopeful to you, it's like, wait, he said that in like a kind tone, but I think what he just said is that we're gonna die and we may not get to see any of that stuff. (laughs) And that is what I'm saying. (laughs) But let me encourage you with this story. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to St. Louis to speak at this summer camp, and uh, I was scheduled to speak at it when I lived in St. Louis, and so it's a little bit more of a hassle now than it was then. 
but I decided to fulfill the commitment. But anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. Um, for the camp, um, I'm uh, going to teach on the, the life of this man named Joseph in the book of Genesis. And if, if, you're not, if you don't know his story, super interesting. You should go read it. Genesis 37 through 50. It's pretty long. Um, but the story of Joseph, I mean, basically here's the whole thing wrapped up in a nutshell. A bunch of bad stuff happens to him. And his life looks pretty terrible for about uh, 13 years. And then he gets exalted and he becomes like second in command of Egypt. And he organizes this, you know, food pantry kind of thing and on a much bigger scale. And he buys up a bunch of, you know, property and stuff for Pharaoh and makes Pharaoh super rich. That's basically the story. But you get to the end of his life and his whole life, he's continued to stay faithful to the God of Abraham, his great-grandfather. And the promise that God made to Abraham was that, you know, you're going to get to live with your family in the land that I'm going to give you, the land of Israel. But Joseph, he gets sold into slavery away from the land. He lives the rest of his life in Egypt. And he gets to the end of his life. And he realizes, I'm never going to see that happen. I'm never going to get to experience that. And so here's what he does. He says, he calls some of his brothers around, and he says, when you guys go back to the land, take my bones with you. Just this little detail. He says, would you, would you tell him to take my bones? And so 400 years later, again, it's like a mustard seed. 400 years later, all of their family became slaves and God sent Moses and they're gonna rescue him. And it's a cool story. And they're on their way out of Egypt and somebody says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't forget, we've gotta get Joseph's bones. And Moses is like, all right, thanks for reminding us. So they send and they literally go and get the old bag of bones and carry it out to the promised land. It's just this, again, it's just this tiny little detail. Why is that significant? Because that's such a picture of the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed, man. You may not get to see the tree be fully grown in your lifetime, but take your bones with you. Invest your bones into the hands of God because a day is coming when there will be a tree. A day is coming when there will be a resurrection. The reason that Joseph could trust his bones into the land is because he was trusting God's the kind of God who could raise the dead. And does God raise the dead? Yes, he does. Just look at Jesus. And so in the New Testament, the only time it talks about Joseph, it says this, by faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Because he was looking forward. He was trusting that even though he may not see it in his lifetime, he had hope that God was going to keep his promise. And the same is true for you. You may not see it now because it's like a mustard seed and it's powerful, but it looks weak. And it's advancing, but it looks inactive. But you can trust God to keep his promises to you. So lift your eyes, be encouraged today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank you for 
the wisdom of Jesus explaining these things to us. I pray that your spirit would be active now. Would you strengthen hearts? Would you give faith today? Would we rest in your promises? And God, even when we don't see it, would we trust that you are working? Even when it seems like our backs are against the wall, God, would you give us courage and hope because this gospel truth of old will not fail. Help us to trust that. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen.